McLean, this is Burford. Burford seeing half a gap. Burford gets away. Burford has Fleetwood on the inside. What she is, there's Fleetwood, Vicky Fleetwood. Even with all the setbacks, you know, of my injury, of not playing much rugby, the contract situation, I just kept focusing on what I could control. It doesn't matter what is up against you. You can always turn things around. You can always change what is going to happen in front of you. Welcome back to Designing Momentum, a Capgemini podcast. I'm Frank Wallace. It's impossible to predict the future. In sport, you can watch tape after tape, and in business, you can study model after model. But sometimes all it takes is your competition to go into a very different direction, to change everything that has come before it. Recently, we've come up against something that no one was ready for. A force of nature that ground the world to a halt. We started producing this series before the global pandemic, and this being a show about applying the best principles from sport to your business approach was sent back to square one. In a world where sport has been cancelled and businesses cut off from their revenue streams, how do you recover? Well, on today's episode of Designing Momentum, we're going to look at what it takes to bounce back from a crisis. How to change your plans when the future doesn't go the way you expected, and how to look at things in a new light when you have the opportunity. To do that, we're going to start with a story. And like any good story, it's a story about having your back up against the wall. When the world seems to be working against you, how do you find a way back to building momentum again? This is Rachel Burford, international women's rugby player for England. So back in 2016, I had um, reconstruction on my shoulder. So I didn't actually play any 15s until November, which was against France. And that was my first game back since 2014. And the only reason why I played in that game was because the other 12 was injured. That was my first game back and we had a two match series against them. And I played in both of those and, you know, the coach kind of like, you're not where you need to be. And I was like, clearly, I've been out with injury for six months with my shoulder. Haven't played 15 since 2014, like since the final in 2014 Rugby World Cup. So anyway, the, the, the number one 12 comes back in, um, in Six Nations and... So I'm sitting on the bench throughout the whole Six Nations. I think I get one start or two starts. Um, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, we're, we're five months out from World Cup. Am I going to get the opportunity to even be in the team? It, during that Six Nations, in their eyes, I was not their number one and wasn't being considered to start in the big games that they felt that were the big games. So like Ireland and France. So I was kind of in a position where I was like, well, what do I do? Do I just give up? Because I felt like I was, you know, on an uphill. I didn't feel like I was going to change the coach's mind. And so I just thought, right, well, any minute that I get on the pitch, any opportunity I get, I have to make it count. Because I thought, even if I don't make the World Cup, if I do everything that I can do and everything I can control, at least I can walk away going, well, look, I did everything I did, no ifs, no buts, no I should have, oh, why didn't I do that? I would just put it all out there. That was my mentality from kind of mid-Six Nations to probably about mid-February was like, I've just got to make everything count. So I need to be really competitive in training. I need to stand out in training. I need to work harder. Um, every opportunity I get on the pitch, I need to make an impact. I need to be seen as she made a difference there. So I did that in, well, in the Ireland game, when I came on, made a good impact, um, changed the game slightly, opened it up a little bit more. Same against France, half-time I got brought on, made a difference. Coach comes up, 
you made a real difference in that game. Like we're starting to see things again. So I was on I was on the right track, but still still felt like I was kind of like up against up against it and not gonna I don't know change the opinion. And I always felt like I was second choice. In this episode, we're going to merge the line in our show and bring sport and business together. We brought on Giles Morgan, sports industry commentator and emerging tech and sports expert, to unpack the impact of what's happened to the sporting world. I think that obviously the impact of, of COVID-19 coronavirus is, is truly global. It's a global pandemic in a modern society of which we've never, mankind's never really seen before. So the effects in industry and commerce are, are going to be far reaching and probably take an awfully long time, if ever, to entirely heal from. Specifically, though, in sport, um, whilst it's going to cause a certain amount of decimation, and I think uh, theorists who are supporters of Darwin will will understand that the, 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 the theory of evolution, which is about adaptation, is those that adapt well will survive and those that don't won't. And I think it's going to be very, very clear in the sports industry because before COVID, the, the commercial landscape of sport has been changing so much and yet a lot of sports weren't adapting. And what COVID will do is force an acceleration. It's actually going to be a catalyst where the, the reset button is going to change the landscape forever. So whilst there's going to be a lot of doom and gloom and there's going to be some great sadness in the sports industry with people and livelihoods being affected, the new sports industry for the rest of the 21st century will probably emerge, as often happens through decimation, to be, to be stronger and more fit for purpose. So I think you'll see a slow winding out of solutions that comply with the zeitgeist of the moment because those are changing all the time medically of course and then you're going to see some innovation which will be kind of interesting to see whether it sticks or whether it's the sh it's a band-aid in the short term this is a disruption point for sport and the viewing experience it's a moment when the industry has to break down what makes it what it is and figure out how to rebuild it in a compelling way, even when it may be under pressure from other forces that are out of its control. If you think of a disruption in industries before, up until, I don't know, the 19th century, music only ever got played live because recording hadn't been invented. Likewise, theatre acting had only ever been done in a live sense because film hadn't been invented. Both were in terms of recording and film. And as a result, you can listen to live music, but you can also listen to recording music of, say, the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And you know as the, the listener that you're still getting an authentic, authentic product, whether it's live because you've gone to the concert or a recording of it. Likewise, even more so, the movie industry, where acting used to be done on a stage and the great actors were, were live performers. Then this thing called movies came along and actors had to evolve acting in front of film. You don't think any less of someone like Dame Judi Dench, whether she's on stage or film, because it's an authentic piece. But I always use the example of Star Wars. We suspend reality and we can watch Darth Vader fight on the Death Star or whatever it is, knowing perfectly well there is an actor fighting on in front of a green screen. And yet it looks pretty cool if there's a volcano going on or whatever's happening. Well, I think there's a really interesting place for sport right now where this rendered environment, this sense of creating studio type effects um, as a background to real sports people um, competing properly would look both very compelling and appealing. 
um, but at the same time get over the fact that there are no live audiences, which makes the entertainment product less less exciting. Those are the kind of technology that all have existed for quite a while. We've just never had to employ them or think laterally. This is the time to think laterally. Adaptation is the key to survival in a changed environment. That's the fundamental uh, principle of Darwinism. And it's true of species in, in history, is when things change and things are changing for mankind in a way that we don't yet know exactly how, but I suspect travel will be uh, changed, how people uh, socially come together. All of those things that we're all talking about, which are far more important than sport, they will affect sports and therefore sport needs to think laterally and, and to adapt or die. It's not just sport that was appended. Everyone around the world was disrupted. It caused major changes not only in work, but also how to go through our lives. The dynamic of society changed. This is Janet Pope from Capgemini. You know, we're, we're recording this uh, during a global pandemic, which has had some interesting impacts to the way that we work and, and certainly some, some impacts to diverse communities when we think about frontline workers, when we think about xenophobia that's taking place and, you know, diversity and inclusion practitioners all over the world are really focused on, of course, health and safety is the first priority. And also, how can we be more supportive of our diverse communities at this time? There's a couple of different things to think about, right? So one, I think there's a positive light that I've heard from um, dads when we think about gender balance in the workplace where more and more dads are working from home and moms are working from home and I think it's given dads a true insight with balancing you know being on 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 webinars and calls all day long trying to homeschool children everybody being in the house together. I've heard more stories from dads and even saw a recent Harvard Business Review article on the fact that they expect dads to be even more supportive of women in the workforce because they've seen how difficult it is to balance work and everything you need to do to raise a family and make sure um, children are getting the right education and all of that. So I've heard that in my own stories that I've been talking to with fathers who are like, wow, my wife is killing it. I, she was clearly killing it before. I need to figure out how to help her more when we come out of this to you know, more research proven things that are shared with Harvard Business Review. So I think that's a positive thing that will happen as we think about um, the fact that having men more involved in the gender balance conversation will improve gender balance and leadership and, and make us all sort of accountable to how we can be more supportive of each other. So I think that's a bright spot. I'd also say that I've had a number of conversations with various companies on thinking through how can we have more flexible working um, situations going forward, right? So in a number of industries, we've sort of proven hey, we don't actually have to physically be co-located. In the last three months, we've proven that we can still deliver, we can still make sure that projects are moving forward and that sort of thing. Now, of course, in certain industries that doesn't work, like the airlines, the poor travel industry right now. 
But in other situations and industries, we're finding that there's some there's better flexibility. This is Rachel Burford. This is good hands. Can they finish it off? They can. This is McKenna in the corner. This is good running onto the right wing. So then we had a tour to New Zealand and we had three tests out there. We played against Australia, um, Canada and New Zealand. And I got I got picked for the first game against Australia. And I probably had one of the best games I've ever had. Um, like kind of a lot of things went right in terms of running, my passing game, my defence game. And for those of you who don't know me or <laughs> um, yeah, don't know me as a player, I'm not a big kicker. And the big kind of evolution of the women's game back then was about kicking and kicking to scores and grubbers and crossfield kicks. And and um, in that game, I, I made a line break. Uh, so I handed somebody, I was off the scrum, handed somebody off, broke through, the fullback was coming across, going to tackle me. Um, and then my winger was in the corner of my eye and she just like pointed her finger to the sky and I just kicked it to the corner. This is Burford with a strong carry in the midfield and then the, oh, the kick across. Just, that's not me. I'd rather have passed it 30 metres than try and kick it. That's an amazing take. There's a picture of me in the video and I'm like, I'm in total shock that I was able to do that. And I don't know what came over me to do it, but it was almost like a moment where I went, I've just proved to you that I can do that side as well. And then the second game I was rested against Canada and then the big game against New Zealand came up and um, that was a huge moment because I knew that I had played really well. I was like, I should I should start in the New Zealand test. Like, if, if he's not going to pick me now, then I know that he's, he's set where he wants to be or he knows what he wants from his other player and, and he believes he can get that. Um, and I remember being in the canteen and we were having a one-on-one -on -one and I was thinking, and normally when you meet your coach before selection, they're probably going to tell you bad news, right? So I'm sitting there with a bit of a, a face on me, like, is he going to tell me that I'm not in? And I just remember like that moment of feeling I've done all that I could they're going to put their best England 15 out against this team. This was the moment of, had I done enough to, to kind of get my nose in front and be considered in that kind of number one jersey for, for 12. And I and he bit me. He bit me to play in that game. And it was one of the best test match rugby's that we've all played in. Real end-to-end -end stuff. It's the first time that we played in New Zealand and beaten them in New Zealand since 2005. That was my moment. That was like knowing that actually the small steps I'm taking, even with all the setbacks, you know, of my injury, of not playing much rugby, the contract situation, I just kept focusing on what I could control, which was everything that I could do. I can't control how somebody else thinks and feels, but what I can do is just make sure that I'm putting my very best foot forward. Sport has always been a safe space and an escape for people. On the pitch, it's how we maintain communities and keep active. As a viewer, it's a way of connecting with other people. So when things started to change, sport did its best to keep its head above water. Much like many other industries, sport had to fast forward many initiatives that already existed. This is Rory Burgess. There were a couple of trends prior to COVID that I thought were really interesting. Um, and they kind of, they, they converged to some extent in the immediate response to COVID. And then I think you've got your post-COVID, what happens next? I think you've got two different questions that you can, you can kind of talk about. If you look at what's happening now, um, sport hasn't gone anywhere. It's just gone online would be one way of thinking about it. So 
you know, if you look at the way that various sports have found new ways to engage fans, because I think that's their biggest challenge, maybe even concern is I've got a fan base out there and somehow I need to honour my commitment to my fan. Um, I think you've also got big um, brands out there who, who need to honour commitments, not just to their fans, but also to their sponsors. So if you take a few examples of that, you know, NASCAR have gone virtual and online. I think the first race they ran had almost a million views. You know, so you've got you've got sports like that. Um, you've got cycling is another sport that's had to reinvent itself very quickly. So if you look at Ineos, for example, so the ex-team Sky, Bradley Wiggins, previous Chris Froome now, very well-known brand, but as a sport heavily sponsor dependent. Um, they can't race, right? They know they can't race. You can't put a, a peloton of 120 riders on a road through Europe. You can't do it. Sponsors need their brands visible. They've made their commitments. Fans want to engage with the sport. So what do you do? So what they've done is they've effectively they've effectively crashed together two trends. One, the virtual sports trend, and the other one is the trend to personalization and particularly about how you get access to the to the players or in this case the riders. And they effectively ran a race for Team Ineos in Swift. So Swift is an online platform. That's your virtual component. What they did, two clever things that they did. The first thing they did was televised the race. And when I say televised, they streamed it. They had a quarter of a million people watch it and another million engage with it post the event. So that's my sponsors taken care of. What they also did ahead of the event was do a ride with the ride with the riders so people could log in swift users and 15,000 fans from around the world came and rode with Geraint Thomas, Chris Froome uh, and, and a whole range of other stars so in some ways what what sports are doing at, at breakneck speed is reinventing themselves around what were actually emerging trends already the fan experience proximity to the player the virtual experience and how that can extend reach so all of those things have suddenly come together and I guess at the same time, we're also seeing, you know, uh, people like me who like their sport, not just as a fan, but also as something that I do, they're taking advantage of that virtual world too. And again, what's interesting is the trend is not just, well, I used to go riding at the weekend and I can't, so I'll go riding on Swift or another or Peloton or any one of those platforms, which, which by the way, are growing at the most extraordinary rate. I mean, I think Peloton's grown to almost a million users overnight. But where they're growing is interesting. So I heard a lovely story of two 75-year-old gentlemen. Um, and every Sunday they go out for their ride, but they can't. So what they do is they both jump on their bikes. They turn on their phones. Um, they ride along for an hour having a chat as they go. They pause, get off their bikes, have a cup of tea and a bit of cake like they would. Then they get back on their bikes and they ride home. And it's the social element that actually people are hooking into. So again, if you go back to Swift as an online platform for riders, the real growth is in their social riding, where you can talk to each other and communicate as much as it is in racing and um, uh, training. As the pandemic stretched on, Sport tried all kinds of different approaches, from the fully digital to mixed experiences. Some initiatives and ideas were better than others. We recorded this series over the course of a few months, learning and growing how emerging tech and sport could actually help the industry move forward. Things have changed and sport has started again. So we brought Rory back to talk about where we are now. Where are we now? It's a great question, where are we now? So if you take the point and shoot answer to that, what's changed is we've got sport back on TV, haven't we? Uh, or at least we're broadcasting sport. Um, and I think 
what's fascinating for me in the first instance is that I, I, I think what we learned is everyone loves sport and everyone misses life sport. Um, and we can talk about some of the trends that maybe have accelerated as a result of the gap that was COVID. But if we look at what's happening now, the um, sort of on-air stream sport is going to pick up massively. It's driven some really interesting new trends. Um, you know, you start to look at the rise of Amazon, for example, streaming sport in the UK and how they've used that significantly to their advantage. I'm aware that when they actually started to stream the football, their subscriptions took off overnight. Clearly a signal that people were desperate to consume it and actually others, a new uh, new entrants are starting to begin to think about how they can actually use this to their advantage. So I think it's got a huge upside to the fan and it's creating new business opportunities simultaneously. So I think that's one side of it. I think another interesting side of it is how tech is quickly starting to try and fill the gap between the experience that people had and the experience they're now having. So I think there's an interesting um, pivot between what was COVID and what will be post-COVID. There's stuff filling the gap. I think in stadiums, really interesting. I, I wonder personally to what extent people are going to want to pay to go to a half or quarter empty stadium where they have to buy everything in advance. They could arrive at the stadium, have their temperature checked and asked to leave. And then when they get inside, what sort of experience will they get? Um, you know, that could be everything from the fact they've got to be socially isolated when they sit in their seat to the fact that actually there'll probably be less beverages on sale because they won't want people heading to the toilets as much. Now, there's so many dynamics within a stadium that are going to have to change to accommodate the gap in between. However, I also believe that I'd love to go back to a stadium to watch sports. So I think another trend that may accelerate is how the stadiums accelerate the value for money that they provide to the fan and actually how they accelerate the provision of a premium in-stadium experience. What can they give to the fan in the stadium that actually that fan won't get at home? And it's an interesting one for me because I think there's been a huge emphasis on what I can give to the fan in at home. All of a sudden, I think they've got to start accelerating that premium in-stadium experience as well. Um, and I think there's a number of different things they could be doing in that space. So the question now is, how do stadium sports adapt? How do they change the experience to encourage people to attend again? Much like cinemas in recent years have focused more on the in-seat experience, it might be time that stadiums look to bring that to fans outside of the box. It's funny, from a personal level, I'm undecided on this because I, I quite like going to a stadium because, you know, it's a bit gritty. I'm surrounded by 80,000 other people and frankly, that's all I need. Um, however, you know, I do think the fan expectation will increase. I, I think there's a number of different ways you could look at it. So I'm a family of four. I'm going to the football. What do I want? Well, I probably want something that helps me effectively almost like a concierge service to navigate from my door to my seat that can help me understand how I can look after my young family in the stadium and what I need to do help me understand where I'm going to get my food from and where best to go and get that food in the stadium um, help me understand how I'm going to leave safely you know I you 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 start to personalize quite quickly uh, if you choose to the experience you can create for the individual and the value on the top of that now is around how I enhance their experience and make it currently in this environment, particularly perhaps a safe and easy 
experience because I actually think a lot of the experience challenge right now is as much about what's in the stadium as how you get to and from and what you're going to need to do when you get there. Um, so I think that's one element of it. And I think the concierge concept is one that, frankly, will accelerate anyway. Um, will I have an app built around the stadium where I enter my preferences and a whole series of options then become available to me? I think the other thing that we, we've talked about before is uh, connectivity to content and to players. Um, and I know already that you know, we're seeing an acceleration through uh, virtual sport and social media, even now, where the the players are becoming more and more prevalent. And um, so the NBA were running player parties um, as one of many techniques they were using to continue the fan experience through lockdown. You know, people like Andy Murray have, have appeared an awful lot. Airbnb have used something called um, Talk with Olympians to help promote their Olympic athletes and their sponsorship of what is no longer the Olympics. So I think I think there's a whole series of things you can now provide to the fan that make it a premium experience depending on their need. And I think the personalization and how you personalize that experience will become really important. The thing is that sport isn't just about watching something on television or going to a stadium. There's more to it. It enables us to bond with people with similar interests and challenge ourselves. Much like in the business world, it can open us up to new opinions and approaches. I think the other thing I think we've learned, which I really hope we retain, is the power of sport outside of just as being a sports fan and being an experience. So, you know, if I look at the amount of attention that's been paid to sport and its positive impact on mental health, you know, COVID, I guess, brought to light for me and many others the fact that you know, focus on sport and your health and well-being is so important. You really kind of hope that that is maintained. I think, you know, we've touched on it before, but when Swift saw that huge increase in um, subscriptions to the platform, a lot of it was about the social side of it and how people could stay connected on their, you know, their weekly ride and remembering the importance of the social side of sport, which I think will probably coming out of COVID be about getting back on your bike and being with your mates again. Um, you know, maybe slightly more controversially, but the power sport has for social good. So it's fascinating as we've come out of COVID at a time when Black Lives Matters is quite rightly um, making a very profound impact on society. Sport is once again, one of the key vehicles to, to show support for that cause. Um, you know, I think those are two or three different trends that are less related to maybe technology in the fan, but I think have really amplified sports importance societally. Um, you know, and my fingers are crossed that those are things that last. And so then obviously we go to the World Cup. I get selected into the team. That final was against Bristol, which is against the other 12 that I'm competing against. It was almost like the jigsaw was just kind of coming together. It was an opportunity to kind of play against it in a in like a real game and go head to head and kind of we came out the other side, again played pretty well. Just things were going well for me. Um and then we're at the World Cup, I play in the first game against Spain and 
I, I'm just, I probably haven't been on that form for, for since 2014 like, or before 2014. Um, and things were just working. Like the people around me, we were clicking together, we were gelling really well. The things that, you know, my strengths were really coming out in the games. And go right to the World Cup final, you know, shirt presentation and I'm picking up the 12 shirt. So you kind of, you rewind. So 10 months ago where I'm sitting there having a conversation that I'm not even considered to be in the team. I'm not even considered to play 15s this year. So now I'm starting in the biggest game in women's rugby in the World Cup final. And just kind of that graft and that work for all those times, even though I there were so many times I wanted to give up. And I remember after that World Cup final, obviously we were we um, didn't win in the World Cup final, but there was a picture and my really good friend of mine bought me a Polaroid camera to take away with me to capture memories. And I took a picture of me in my little booth at the end of the game um, and it's got the number 12 shirt. And it was just kind of like, almost like unbelievable, my journey. I was thinking, it doesn't matter what is up against you, you can always turn things around. You can always change what is gonna happen in front of you. The biggest thing that I almost let happen was not believing in myself because somebody else didn't at that time. And I think that's the biggest thing that I took away from that, that if I believe in myself and I do everything that I can within my control, then I'm gonna get somewhere or and to the place that I wanna get to. Building and maintaining momentum is never a single player sport. It requires a team that's diverse and resilient in order to weather whatever comes their way. Over the course of this season, we've seen sometimes it takes looking beyond business books and best practice documents and looking at the highest performers in other areas to understand how to set yourself in front of the rest of your industry. If there's one thing to take away from what we have been through, it's that sport is at its best when it's at its most authentic. The baseline of stripping it back to being a game of skills between two teams. Recently the competition has been with a pandemic, rather than on the pitch. So if your industry, company or you are struggling to keep momentum going, maybe it's time to take a look at your way of working and bring it back to the authentic version of what it is that you do. A new phase, breaking the old way of doing things or taking advantage of a split second opportunity might just result in something your opposition was never ready for. A good old fashioned comeback. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Designing Momentum. If you want to find out more about emerging tech in sport, you can find out more at capgemini.com slash ETS. This has been Designing Momentum, a podcast from Capgemini. A big thank you to all our guests this episode. Giles Morgan of GD Consulting, Rachel Burford, Janet Pope, and Rory Burgers of Capgemini. You can find out more about the work they do and how to contact them at capgemini.com momentum. Designing Momentum is produced by Joe Morris and Greg Newsma. This show is written and produced for Capgemini by Adrift Entertainment. And it's hosted by me, Frank Wammers.